And turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be wrapping up the book of Galatians this week. And since we're in the, uh, the season of giving gifts, I, I wonder if you can think back and remember when um, you were a kid, that incredible sense of anticipation as you saw the presents begin to pile up under the tree. Uh, my sister and I, we, we were experts at examining every package for you know, size and shape and weight and girth and, um, you know, wrapping technique. And my sister, she's four years older than me, and she actually, she taught me that there were some packages that, uh, depending on how they were taped, you really could untape them, slide the package out, examine it, and put it back. And we, I confess, we did that. We opened them up. So now, it's funny, if you get a package from my sister, it, it's uh, hot glue gunned, like everywhere, you know, inside, outside. She, I guess she suspects that I'm still into the same old tricks that she taught me. But uh, do you remember when um, you got something that you really, really, really wanted? Especially you got something that you really, really, really wanted, but you didn't think you were going to get. Your parents didn't think you were old enough or whatever. I remember when I got uh, a Red Rider BB gun. Oh gosh, that's so awesome. I, you know, I didn't think I was going to get it. I didn't think they trusted me that I was old enough. I don't remember any other gift that I got that Christmas. I just remember going out on the back porch and I had like seven million BBs and I just, you know, was pouring them in and just shooting everything that I could possibly see. It was awesome. I loved that. Now, I, I noticed a change in my mentality now as an adult. As a child, when I got something that I really wanted, I was just ecstatic. Now, if I get something that I really wanted, and particularly if it's something that's really nice and kind of expensive, and the corresponding gift that I gave to the other person is not at equal value, I feel guilt. Remember we started our discussion of Galatians, we talked about that. As adults, it uh, sometimes gets more difficult for us to receive. We don't receive well. Last week I gave you an illustration about a family that uh, mowed my lawn just because they wanted to give to me. And I appreciated it and I was uh, thankful for it and I rejoiced in it. But honestly, there was something inside of me that said, now I need to go mow their lawn. Or I need to give a gift certificate. Or I need to do something. I need to do something in return. You know, there's something about us as adults. I think it's pride that we don't receive gifts easily, especially gifts that are really, really, really nice gifts like eternal life. Greatest gift we could possibly receive, the gift that we need the most, the gift of a relationship with God that lasts forever. It's absolutely free. There's nothing that we can give back in return. God doesn't even ask us to give in return. He wants us just to say, thank you, I accept. And there's something in us that says, yeah, but that's really just too good to be true. I need to give something back. I need to merit that. I need to earn that. I need to be worthy of such a gift. The churches always struggle with this. That was the, in a sense, the theological battle that the church first faced. These churches in Galatia, They're facing that battle. And as we wrap up this book, I want to remind you that the book of Galatians is not primarily or ultimately just about doctrine. The book of Galatians is about the church. And it's about the church's relationship to God through grace. And their misunderstanding of some really significant doctrines that as a result really messed up their practice, their love for one another within the church. And so as we wrap up the book, I want us just to review some of those really significant doctrines and the practical implications of those. So I want you to look with me first in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 3. 
to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Uh, If there are two really big questions that are answered in the book of Galatians, the first is this, how can I become right with God? How can I know that I am in right relationship with God? And as Paul begins the book, he reminds them very briefly of the content of the gospel. He doesn't spend a lot of time on the content of the gospel because they're believers. He knows that they know it. But he briefly, almost in passing, reminds them, this is the content. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. He gave himself physically. He gave his body. As a sacrifice for our sins, not for his own sins did he hang on the cross, but as a substitute payment for our sins so that he could rescue us out of this present evil age. We're trapped. We're slaves. We're slaves to sin and we're slaves to death. And so Jesus Christ at a point in time, the fullness of time, we're told, came to earth and the eternal Son of God took on human flesh so that he could die in payment for our sins. That's the content of the gospel. Paul spends a lot more time talking about our response to the gospel, okay? This truth of death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a payment for our sin, how do we respond to that? One of the primary places he talks about it, and he talks about it throughout the book, is in chapter 2, verse 16. Galatians two sixteen, Paul says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, But through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And here Paul contrasts the work of Jesus Christ, his faithful work, and the works of the law. And he says, in what do you trust? The response to the content of the gospel that God calls forth is faith, simply faith. And because it's so easy, we're always tempted to add things to it. Faith plus surrender. Faith plus cleaning up my life. Maybe faith plus baptism. Faith plus good works. Faith plus something. And Paul says, no, it's just faith. Faith is simply receiving. Faith is seeing the gift, understanding you need the gift. I'm a sinner, separated from God. I need that gift. And as the gift is handed to you in the person of Jesus Christ, you reach out and say, I accept. That's faith. Remember we mentioned that the issue is not the quantity, so to speak, of our faith or the quality of our faith. The issue is the object of our faith. Have we placed our faith in the correct object because only one can save and his name is Jesus Christ? Only one has paid the penalty for your sin and his name is Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith, your confidence, your trust in the right object, Jesus Christ? The result will be what's known as justification. And Paul spends a lot of time developing this doctrine because they didn't understand salvation by grace through faith. It messed up the practice of the church. And so he spends a lot of time dealing with this doctrine of justification, which means very simply to be put into a right relationship with God. To be declared to be in right relationship with God. How do you achieve this? through no merit of your own, through no effort of your own, simply by receiving Jesus Christ. The moment that you do, 
God's Spirit puts you into Christ. Now God sees you in Christ, so you meet the standard because Christ meets the standard. It's not based upon your participation other than to receive the gift. If you walk away with one big theological term that you've got nailed down, it should be justification from this book. Justification means to be declared to be in right relationship with God just through Jesus Christ. Now you can understand why was this difficult for the first century church to really understand. Well, remember when the church first was born on the day of Pentecost, it was almost entirely Jewish. It was born of of people who had grown up living out the law. It was was born of people who had gone to Jerusalem. They had visited the temple. They had made sacrifices and offerings to remain in fellowship with God. Uh, Their sons had been circumcised. They had gone to synagogue and they'd heard the reading of the old covenant day after day, year after year. It was in their blood. And now that Jesus Christ has come and there are men who are preaching Christ, they're saying, no, that that old covenant, that old way of relating to God is no longer relevant. Now you come simply through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul was fighting a variety of, of doctrinal errors within the early church. Now, in case you missed it, here's the basic argument, okay, the structure of his argument. If you want to write this, uh, you know, in the margin of your Bible or above chapter 1, Paul argues first on a personal basis. He says, I'm an apostle. And I wasn't sent from men or the agency of men. And I didn't get my message from men. I got my message from Jesus Christ directly. And so he begins to describe how he received that message in the course of his own uh, initial salvation and then his interaction later on with the apostles, even going to the extent that he recounts this interaction with Peter the chief of apostles, so to speak, who was messing up the gospel and how Paul had to confront him to get him back into understanding that being declared righteous only happens through faith. Okay, so he starts personal or historical. Then he moves on to a doctrinal section where he argues from the biblical covenants, specifically the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the relationship between the two to show that now we are in a new era because the fullness of times has come. Jesus Christ has earned the right to give out the promises that were made to Abraham. And those promises included the indwelling spirit. So now the mark of a person being in a relationship with God and a part of the people of God is that by faith they possess the Holy Spirit. It's no longer circumcision. It's no longer keeping of the law. So he argues theologically or doctrinally. And then finally he makes a practical argument. What does this look like in your relationships within the church? Because what it should look like is, first, that you love one another. Because that is the mark of being Christ-like. If there's one single mark of being like Christ, it's having love for one another. Or as he'll describe it, uh, having freedom. I'm free to give to you and expect you to give nothing back to me. Because that's what God is like. That's the nature of the gospel. God is giving and he's not demanding, requiring, or expecting payment in return. As a matter of fact, there is nothing that we could possibly give in return. But this is not being worked out in their midst because of these doctrinal errors or having practical implications in the church. What were those errors? First, there was legalism. And legalism is like a, a big monster with a lot of heads, okay? So the first part of legalism is simply this, trying to earn a right relationship with God through my own works. 
thinking that I can do something that puts me into right relationship with God. Now, we often can spot this very easily in that all the religions of the world are legalistic in this sense. They, they believe in a works-based salvation or whatever terminology is used, but they believe that a person is uh, able to achieve eternal life or achieve relationship that's appropriate with the deity based upon works. Ultimately, good works are weighed against bad works, and if good works are heavier, then you have this relationship. And if not, well, in a lot of religions, you get another chance because you're going to come back as something else, right? And we can spot that and say, okay, we got that legalism. And we see sometimes that even among groups that would call themselves Christians. The legalism in the early church, particularly the churches in Galatia, was a little more subtle than that. These Judaizers who came and preached among them were actually from the church in Jerusalem. They were from the mother church, which added a lot of credibility to what they were saying. And what they were saying is we believe in the death, burial, of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. We think he's God's Messiah sent for us, but if you want to be a part of the people of God, it's not just believe in him as God's Messiah, but you also still have to get circumcised and you still have to keep the works of the law. So it's Christ plus your effort. Well, you know, you can understand that if you grew up with the law your entire life and you don't understand, no, the law was for a time, but now the fullness of times has come. And because Jesus Christ lived righteously under the law and he was a son of Abraham and he was a son of David, he was related to these men living perfectly under the law, he has the right, having fulfilled the law, to set it aside to give us a new covenant. And through the promises of that new covenant, he fulfills the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. The promises of the new covenant remove permanently the debt of sin. They don't just cover them over like the law did. And the promises of the new covenant give us the indwelling spirit so that we have regeneration, we're born again. The law was never designed to do that. There was no way the law could regenerate us or empower us to be transformed. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, if a law had been given that could, be, could have imparted life, then Christ died needlessly. The law didn't impart life. The law didn't give life. But it was difficult for them to get past this. And so they went around preaching. Really, they followed Paul. Where Paul preached and stopped there, well, they came shortly after and they said, nah, he's not telling you really the whole story. Maybe look at his life. But sometimes he goes back to Jerusalem and he's in the temple. He's not telling you the whole story. Why? Because he wants to have you as followers. And Paul comes back around with this letter and he says, no, you're misunderstanding. Everywhere I go, what I preach is Christ crucified. End of story. I preach the new covenant. I preach the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant through Jesus Christ. You cannot earn a right relationship with God. So everywhere Paul goes, he is battling this form of legalism. Now, what's the effect on the church? Look at chapter 2 and verse 11. Remember, Antioch was one of the first Gentile churches to be planted, primarily Gentile, some Jews mixed in together, but it was a a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church in Antioch. And Paul had been preaching there, Barnabas had been there. Now, Cephas comes, or Peter, it says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, that is, they came from the Jerusalem church, he used to eat with the Gentiles, 
But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him. He's Peter, after all. They joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas, my best friend, was carried away by their hypocrisy. And you can see literally physically what's happening in this church. They would gather to share a meal, to pray together, to have fellowship together, to enjoy the teaching of the word and prayer for one another. And initially, as they came together, This miraculous thing happened. The the barrier of the dividing wall that separated Jew and Gentile, it just kind of disintegrated. And Jews and Gentiles are sitting at the same table and they're eating together the same food. And when it's time to share the Lord's Supper and remember the death of Christ on their behalf, they're breaking bread, passing it across the table. It's the same body of Christ. One body broken for you, one body broken for me. Here, let's share the cup together. One blood shed for you, one blood shed for me. And there is unity in this church. Now, as these preachers of legalism come, what happens? There's division in the church. And there's jealousy and strife. There's a group who's sitting over here because the Judaizers came and they tempted Peter and he felt political pressure and social pressure and he moves over to this side of the room and no longer is he mingling with all of them. He's sitting here with the group that says, we're in and we're not sure about you. If you're in at all, you're here and we're here. And how did that make them feel? We're superior, you're inferior. There's jealousy and there's strife and there's all kinds of stuff. If you look at chapter 5, verse 15, it says, If you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Imagery of sharing the meal together. Verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. There's division within the church. Because of legalism. The second doctrinal error that Paul had to fight against was license. Uh, In a sense, the opposite extreme. That is, taking rightness with God for granted. I'm in. So I can do whatever I want. There is no consequence. That's license. And Paul describes it. Chapter 5, verse 19 It says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, their immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Verse 13, chapter 5, brethren, you're called to freedom. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. I'm free so I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, no, 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 you're missing the point of freedom. You're not free from any constraint to be like Christ. You're free so that you can become like Christ. You can now love like Christ. You're free Because God's spirit dwells in you, you don't have to listen to the flesh anymore. You don't have to be totally consumed and preoccupied with yourself. Isn't that a wonderful thing? You ever felt the enslavement of being completely consumed with just what you want to happen? And when it doesn't happen, how do you feel? Angry, defensive, you go after it. Now, freedom means being like God. Who gives and gives and gives and gives. Because you got plenty to give. You got extra left over. So Paul's fighting against legalism. He's fighting against license. The result in the church is that there is broken relationships. There's division. Some are disturbed. They're stirred up. Some are sitting over here on this side of the room and they're saying to themselves, 
what if we're not in? What if we're not a part? What if we haven't done enough? Maybe they're right. They're doubting. Do they belong to the people of God? Do they belong to Jesus Christ? Do they have a relationship? There's insecurities that's developing on one side of the room. There's pride on the other. There's condescension. And it's just a mess. It's a complete mess. And so God steps in through the Apostle Paul and he writes this letter to put this church in line with right doctrine so that they will begin to love one another and display unity within the church. Okay, that's the first big question in a sense that Galatians answers. The second is this, how can I grow in rightness with God? How do I move forward? How do I mature in rightness with God? And basically there were two approaches. The wrong approach was through legalism again, which was another form of the flesh. I want you to look with me in chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul says, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods, but now that you have come to know God. Okay, so he's writing, at one point in time, you were slaves to idols. You made your offerings to them and your sacrifices to them, and you were hoping that they would manage life for you and make life turn out correctly. You were slaves to these things. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, Paul's saying, uh, whether it's legalism or the idolatry and the license, both of those are forms of the flesh. And license is pretty obvious, but legalism sometimes gets sanctioned in the church. Remember Martin Luther's analogy, he said, we're all like the drunk peasant. We're sitting on the horse and Satan doesn't care which side of the horse we fall off of. Whether it's toward legalism or toward license, the result is always the same. It's division within the church. Look with me in chapter 3 and verse 3. Paul writes in really strong language. He says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected or are you now growing into maturity by the flesh? That is, by your own works. That's the second form of legalism. I can get into a right relationship with God through my own works or through Christ plus works. That's legalism. I only am put into a right relationship with God through the merits of Jesus Christ and through his work. Second form of legalism says I can grow in that relationship. I can transform my character into the character of Christ through my own effort. Or I can earn more of God's favor, more of God's love through my own effort. And Paul says absolutely not. Because you're in Christ, God loves you absolutely and unconditionally and forever. That's grace. So when you sin, does he love you less? No. When you're living relatively holy, and I say that relatively to the rest of us, not relative to God, but you're living relatively holy, does he love you more? No. Because he loves you perfectly in Jesus Christ. So how do you grow in maturity and in enjoyment of that relationship with Jesus Christ? Well, through the promise that Jesus Christ earned when he died on the cross in giving us his spirit so that we could freely love. That's the pathway through which we grow. Look at me in chapter 5 and verse 1. 
Paul says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's not freedom from holiness, it's freedom to be like Jesus Christ. It's freedom to love. As I walk in step with the Spirit, as I make myself available to listen to the voice of the Spirit, His Spirit transforms my character. I'm free. I'm free from the flesh. I'm free from myself. And that is transforming. And that's what Paul is really driving at. That's what he's after. So that this body would be loving one another in such a way that people would look in and they would say, ah, they're one. In Christ, there is neither male or female. There's neither slave or free. There's neither Jew nor Greek. These racial divisions have been overcome. These these, uh, gender divisions have been overcome. Age divisions have been overcome because they are one in Jesus Christ. That is a model of the body of Christ. It's a unity that only Jesus Christ can achieve. And that's what Paul is driving at. Now this week I asked you um, to send me any questions you have and so because I wanted to respond. Are there issues that you feel like, hey, we didn't cover? I got a few emails. Uh, one of the, the best ones that I got wanted to apply this whole concept to parenting. How does all this work out? How does it work out in parenting? How does it work out in marriage? Generally speaking, what grace looks like in our home is communicating to our children and communicating to our spouses that we love them absolutely and unconditionally and forever and we're not going anywhere. That we will be faithful and loyal. There may be consequences to behavior that is not in line with the holiness of God, but I love you. You cannot move outside of the realm of my love and my grace, and my loyalty to you. That is rich soil in which people grow. Legalism in the home stunts grace. Legalism in the home looks like this. I'll love you more if. And it may never be stated that way, but it's felt. When you achieve, when you accomplish, when you obey, then more love is coming. And most people grow up in a home like that. And it's really subtle, but that, that's something that stunts growth. Grace, where you know you are forever accepted and loved, it just, it just stimulates growth. It's a safe place. Can that grace be abused? Well, sure it can, but, it, but it's rich soil. You know, I, I didn't grow up here in Texas. I, I grew up moving all around, but I was born in Washington State. And the, uh, the area where I was born... And where my dad grew up is called Skagit Valley. In Skagit Valley, there's a Skagit River runs through, and for uh, hundreds of years, it would flood and it would uh, lay down layers of this really rich soil. It grows all kinds of stuff. I think I showed you one time a picture of those tulips. If you see those pictures of tulips that come from the U.S., it's usually Skagit Valley. It's just really rich soil. You get out your shovel, you just go, like it just slides into the dirt, and you turn it over. It's dark, it's rich. You know, it's not like that at College Station. 
Okay, uh, my dad and I, we were, plant, we were building a, a fence a couple years ago in my backyard, and so we rented a post hole digger. We, did not a, uh, we didn't get an auger on the back of a tractor, but just a big handheld post hole digger. It's probably about 200 pounds, something like that. And, uh, you know, we're punching these holes through the clay, and it was rough going. But we hit one corner, and we started driving it down, and, and this auger, it's, uh, I mean, really heavy, powerful. It's going, it goes down about two inches, and then it stops. So um, my dad, he weighs, he's 200 plus. He, he gets on top of the auger, literally, you know, and he's, so his legs are flying. He goes, balance me, you know, and so he's out there, his legs are flying, and I'm balancing the thing, and it's going, whoa, 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 bouncing, and he goes down about two more inches, okay, and then it sticks, and he goes, get on my back. So I jump, so there's the scene. I can just imagine neighbors seeing us, you know, he's laying on top of this thing. I'm laying on top. We're trying to balance, get all of our weight, and it goes down about another inch, and we're stuck completely. So I soaked it all night long. I put a little water in that little divot that we made. Next day, we both climbed on top, and we were able to get it down about eight inches into this clay. I mean, that's legalism, okay? (laughs) It doesn't grow. You stick a post hole in a soil with clay, nothing happens. You kick the dirt in the Skagit Valley and drop a seed in, and it flourishes. Because that's just human nature. When we know that we're going to fail, but if we fail, there is security in that love. That's grace. Okay, That's the, the atmosphere of grace. Whether it's uh, with your children or with your spouse, creating that sense of security, you are unconditionally loved forever. Even when I know everything about you and even when you fail and you step outside the boundaries, I love you. Now, for parents, I want to see if I can put it in a little bit more practical terms. Some of you are going to like this illustration and relate to it. Uh, others, maybe not. But I'm going to graph parenting, okay? Because uh, my background was economics and students, it's about finals time. Maybe this will help, okay? On your x-axis, you have age, okay? On the y-axis... You have maturity. The goal in parenting I would describe in simple terms is this. You want your children to reach independent dependence. And what I mean by that is you want them to be independent of you. Certainly financially, right? They're out of the house. They're paying their bills. All that kind of stuff. You want that, right? Um, But you want them to learn dependence upon God. You want them to learn to walk with Jesus Christ faithfully so when they ultimately are outside of your house and they're living on their own, they know how to get into Christian fellowship. They know how to listen to the voice of the Spirit. They know how to walk wisely in this world because they're dependent upon God. So in a sense, they are independent of your walk with God. They own it. They are living independently dependent. That doesn't mean separated from you. You want a relationship, but not that they, they have to have you to walk wisely and well in the world. So this is kind of the goal, okay, in a nutshell. That's what you're aiming at. This is what you expect to happen when you have kids, okay? For those of you college students, that's not funny to you at all. You just, yeah. For those of you who have kids, you go, that's what you expect. Doesn't always work like that. The line is never linear. I wouldn't even know how to graph it. You know, it bumps all over the place, Um, It's not smooth at all. But this is how parenting works. When they're first born, what do they need from you? They need law. 
You know, what, what is it? What does a, a toddler need? A toddler needs to know these are the boundaries. You don't negotiate them with a toddler. Hey, what do you think? What's an appropriate discipline if you step outside? You don't ask a two-year-old. You don't ask. You say, this is the line. This is the consequence. And when they step outside the line, if you're on your parenting game, you consistently and lovingly enforce that line. You try to be consistent. But you're not negotiating. You're just making it really clear. They need to know clearly where's the line. If I step across it, what happens? And then I wrap my arms around them when they've stepped across the line and say, I love you. And there is that affirmation that stepping across the line does not destroy our relationship. I love you. I don't love you any less, but I can't keep you from the consequences if you make these choices. And what we're trying to do with our children when we are early on putting law in front of them is we're trying to teach them that in this world, every action has a consequence. And we're doing them a disservice if we don't teach them that every action has a consequence. We're not helping them grow and move to maturity. Well, you know, this is what happens. Some of them, they don't get there as quickly. You're like, okay, are you going to get it? Are you going to get it? Are you going to get it? Oh, okay, they finally got it. Awesome. And then you have other kids that they go, wow, man, that kid, that's really remarkable. Quickly they understood and they could enjoy freedom. Because they weren't going to take that freedom and use it as an opportunity for the flesh. They had the maturity to manage that. And then there are kids that we have that don't get there. And they may even move out of our house. And we're still waiting and we're still praying and we're still grieving because now they have achieved a level of freedom because they've moved out, but they don't have the maturity to really handle it. And so they're abusing that freedom and they're making poor choices. And that's not what we long for for them. What we long for them is that they would be independently dependent upon God and so that they could actually enjoy freedom and not use it for the flesh, but use it to serve one another. That's what we long for. Because that's maturity. That's maturity. So I haven't given you a really black and white answer um, uh, to the folks who sent me this email. I, I, I kept it fairly gray because in parenting, it's lots of gray. It's a continuum. That movement from law to freedom, what you want is you want to give your kids more and more and more freedom. You want to stretch them. And you know, you can start very, very early teaching them to walk independently with the Lord. Even when they're, you know, 18 months, two years, two and a half years old, you sit down and you teach them to pray. And when they begin to pray, how do they pray? They say, God, give me this toy and this toy and this toy and this toy and this toy. Amen. Okay? And all the prayers are focused around themselves because they haven't quite busted out of this thing that they're not the center of the universe. But you're trying to teach them that, right? That God is the center of the universe and we live for him and we orbit around him. And so just like the disciples said, God, teach, Jesus teaches how to pray. You're teaching them how to pray and you're, you're molding their character as you do. And you, you're trying to direct them are there others around us who have needs that we could pray for? Do they have some kind of physical need? Well, you know, grandma and grandpa, are they feeling sick? Let's pray for them. And they say, well, can, Jesus, can I have this toy and this toy and this toy and this toy? And please make grandma and grandpa well. Amen. You know, and then gradually in time, hopefully you're teaching them to enjoy freedom, which is getting over ourselves and giving to others without condition. 
Are there any people in our family who don't know Jesus Christ? Can we pray for them? And so we begin to direct our prayers and our focus not just toward ourselves, which there's nothing wrong with that, but begin to direct them toward others. And we're shaping and molding character even from a very young age. And as they get older and more mature, they can handle more freedom. We're giving them more because they're learning to use it wisely. They're learning to control themselves under the power of the Spirit and use freedom for the good of others. And that's what we're aiming at. Honestly, not just in parenting, but in our own lives, right? Because that's maturity. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for evil, but through love serve one another because love really is the fulfillment of all the commandments. And this is the way that we know that we're maturing in discipleship is that we're able to give and not expect things in return. I want to leave you uh, this morning with uh, one application, one big application from the book of Galatians. I want you to turn back with me to chapter 1 and verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle. Okay, months ago we went through this verse and we defined apostleship. Who can tell me what is an apostle? Literally, what's the word mean, apostle? Sent one. Okay, one who is sent. One who is sent. Paul begins most of his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle. Paul, an apostle specifically of Jesus Christ. Now, I stand uh, in front of you today and I'm, I'm wearing my wedding ring. Okay, my wedding ring is my reminder that I represent my family. I represent Tristy Fisher and I represent Ben and Anna Joy. My last name is Fisher. I represent even a broader group of Fishers. Everywhere I go, I have this with me. I've got my name with me. I'm carrying these things. Sometimes I wear my Aggie ring. It's so big, it reminds me I'm an Aggie and I'm representing Texas A&M. Whoop, I earned that, all right? And I have a business card in my pocket that says Grace Bible Church. So I'm going places and I'm representing Grace Bible Church. And as you go out, you don't necessarily have the office of apostle. You are not responsible for laying the foundation doctrinally for the church. But you are equally one who has been sent. You've been sent. And as you go out, you are representing Jesus Christ. Everywhere you go, that's the most important thing about you. More important even than your family name. That you're part of the family of Jesus Christ. So during this season, you're, you're going to be sent. Okay? Students, you're going to be sent back into your home. Some of your homes probably work really well. Some of your homes don't work really well. Some of you will be going to Christian homes. A lot of you will be going to homes where people don't know Jesus Christ. And Family members, you're going to be going or others going to be coming to your home. And at the Christmas season, it's really hard because there's a reminder a lot of times of loss and grief. People who aren't there, that you wish were there. And there are relationships that just don't work well. People you wish weren't there. People who are, uh, or they're not talking at all. There's tension and, you know, holiday season. It's supposed to be so joyful. Wow, it's, it's tough and stressful and tense. And you know what? You're the one who's been sent. Right into the midst of all of that, you're carrying grace. You're carrying unconditional love. 
that you've received from Jesus Christ that you can offer to them, that you can display as you love, as you serve, as you give, as you bear their burdens and you expect nothing in return. You're going home where they're coming to you so that you can serve them and display the grace of Jesus Christ. You're, you're getting to, in a sense, have an opportunity to put them into that really rich soil. Maybe they've never experienced it before in their lives. Maybe they can't remember what it was like. And you have an opportunity to cultivate grace for them. I want to commission you or recommission you again. As Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus. And I thank you that you sent him, eternal Son of God, to take on human flesh, to bear all of the humiliation and the injustices that he did as he grew into a man and suffered and died on the cross for us. But he did not stay there. He rose from the dead. And he has left us here to be his representatives. And so, Father, we accept that commission. And, Father, for these men and women, for myself, who have likewise been sent into the world to represent Jesus Christ, I pray, Father, that during this holiday season we would uh, just get a, a much larger vision We'd be able to get over our preoccupation with ourself that we're constantly tempted with because of the flesh and that we would be able to give and serve because we have received abundantly in Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Students, we'll see you in January.